This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Leanna Tan, here to give you some of Matt's best tidbits to help you live healthier, happier lives. We are right smack in October, and that means that Halloween is just around the corner. If you didn't know, Halloween originated from this Celtic belief that the dead returned to Earth on the eve of All Hallows Day. So now, every year, we kind of recognize and even celebrate the dead. So what better topic to bring up than death? But today, I don't want to talk about it in a spooky sense, but in a very frank sense. Halloween is all about things that are scary and fearsome, but why does death need to be that way? I hadn't really thought about that until I listened to these segments, and they brought up some very poignant ideas. If Halloween is celebrating fears, people might as well dress up as, you know, marriage or finances or parenting because those are all pretty scary things. But on this show, how we've taught people to overcome fears is to talk about the issue and feel free to bring up the subject. I mean, why are finances so scary to you? Maybe because it was a taboo subject in your house and you were never sure what was lurking in those bank accounts. But once you open up and talk about it and shed some light on the subject, then suddenly it's not so scary anymore and you can accept the subject and learn about it and progress from it. So then, isn't death the same way? Why is death such a taboo subject? Why is everyone so afraid of it? Well, maybe it's because we've created a culture that portrays it that way, that has an entire day of fear and dread based off of it. So today, we're going to talk through it a bit. I pulled two separate interviews from two completely different years even, both interviewing women who work in hospice care. This first one is with Fran Smith, and she kind of gives the basics. What even is hospice care? I, I really, it's just, it hits so close to home. I remember when we were um, prepping for the show yesterday, I'm thinking, oh yeah, this is, this is, this could be such a hard topic. And then I go home and have this experience with this friend, 99-year-old friend, where we're talking about him wanting to die. And um, I thought, oh man, we'll see, there's, you know, this is meant to be, Fran. So teach us some more. How does the process work? When... How does how is it brought up usually? How do you find out it's time for hospice care, and uh, and 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 how does the process go for choosing where we want to go and how we want to go? Well, the 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 short answer to the question is it as I said earlier, um, it hospice is a service for people who have a six month life expectancy, and if the disease they have were to run its natural course, meaning you're not getting treated for the disease, so. Typically, you know, it can come up in a hospital setting, a physician can bring it up, a hospital social worker can talk about it. But what what happens kind of in practice is that doctors don't often want to bring this up. And and most doctors, especially older doctors, aren't trained in having these conversations. Right. Um, that was never part of medical school training until pretty recently. Yeah. So, you know, what, what kind of happens a lot in reality, is that it's the patients who bring it up. Mm-hmm. Um, the patients, you know, hear about it from a friend. I told a story about Rusty. It was really a friend who said to him, you know, who saw how exhausted he was, how exhausted his wife was, and said, 
do you want to think about this? Uh-huh. Um, and, and in some cases, patients actually, actually have to fight their doctor because what happens is you have to get a referral from your physician okay. and also the, um, the hospice physician has to sign off. So you need two doctor signatures certifying that you are eligible for the service. And, and I guess that's just so insurance will pay. Right. That is so insurance will pay. Right. Um, but the really important thing, and you know, I love the way you started the program in the the, uh, the Fleetwood Mac music. But <laughs> you know, really, it's important to think about all of these things before you ever need it. Right. Because the really the worst time to try to make a decision is when the crisis occurs. So you know, we found again and again in talking with people that families who had just had these conversations when they were healthy, and it was kind of an, a- an abstract concept. You know, what would you want? Would you want every intervention? Would you want to come home? Where, where do you want to be? The families who had, had those conversations were in a much better position to, to make a decision they were comfortable with mm-hmm. when the crisis occurred. And, and families that really avoided these talks until they were in the situation were kind of like deer in the headlights. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very difficult time to make a decision. Is it, do you just sense that as a, as a population, are we getting more comfortable with death? Well, I mean, because it's we are. I mean, I'm more willing to have this conversation, and I think more and more people are having the conversation. And with the aging population, it seems like we better start having these conversations. Right. Well, I think, you know, you're seeing a huge cultural shift. There there are now death cafes happening where people kind of get yeah. together and talk about death. There are... Uh, there's a, a movement called and an organization called Death Over Dinner, where they organize dinner parties. So there, there really wow. is a, a movement to bring this out in the open. And yeah. you know, if you kind of go back, you know, a generation ago, that never happened. You know, on the flip side, people still, even though hospice has grown hugely, most people still die in hospitals. And even people who come into hospice care co- tend to come in very, very late. Only in the last days or, or you know, a couple weeks of life, even though they have months, they have this opportunity for months. Yeah. So we still, you know, the more, the more medicine we have and the more high-tech stuff we have to throw at any medical issue, the more inclined we are to keep going, 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 going. Yeah. And it's, um, it's such a personal decision. And yet the idea, it's almost like we're dying in a building that we and we might you know feel lonely and cold in these buildings, and yet we've lived our entire lives in our homes, and because of I guess not talking about it, not planning it, we don't even know that we have the choice to do it another way. Sometimes I guess. Yeah, we heard that a lot. Um, you know, some some really distressing stories, and, and actually often with younger people, um, because you know older people by the time they get to that stage have often thought about these things, but, you know, if a younger person, 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s gets mm-hmm. sick, often they haven't had these conversations about what they want. Yeah, they might right. have had it with their parents, you know. And, you know, we talk with so many people who've had family members in that situation and, and you know, and ended up people dying in the hospital or coming home at the very, very end. And only after the fact, you know, family members look back and say, you know, she would not have wanted that. She would have wanted to be home with her kids and and really um, had a different kind of support at mm-hmm. the very end. You you've seen a lot of different approaches, a lot um, and philosophies. I'm sure you've seen different hospice care organizations. What are some of the different offerings? What are some of the things they bring that that might you know that are, that increase your options at that you know difficult stage? Well, there are certain basics that 
any hospice program has to provide, um, especially if it's certified by Medicare. So they're certain they have to offer spiritual care. They have to have a medical supervisor, a doctor supervising the care. They have to offer nursing care, um, social work support. But how programs do this and how they go beyond the basics really vary from program to program and place to place. So we saw... Uh, oh, they also have to offer bereavement support. So they don't just abandon the families when the, after the patient dies, but they really are supposed to support the families for at least a year up until hmm. the, uh, a year after the death. Um, but, you know, how, how different programs fulfill those requirements vary. So, you know, we saw programs that offer just a huge array of psychosocial services that, you know, a psychologist can come in and do life reviews with the patient. Um, We saw music therapy, massage therapy. Um, We saw programs that offer full range of bereavement support, you know, groups for bereaved spouses or bereaved kids who have lost their parents or parents who've lost a kid, you know, really, really tailored. And then, you know, and on the other side, you see programs that, you know, bereavement support means sending out a postcard on the, you know, every few months to say, call us if you need help. Um, So it really, really varies the kind of range of services that are available. How do you, in the end, how do you choose? I mean, A, it's a subject that people have a difficult time with. Um, it might be something that we're not always looking for, but then I, I'm I'm almost afraid when I see that seventeen billion dollars of uh, of money is being generated in this area. Um, I, I mean, I would hate this to turn into like a timeshare sales opportunity. <laughs> you know, I mean, is it? How do you how do you choose? How do you well, know? You know, and it's a great question, and it's you know the first thing is to realize. There are choices out there. So, you know, what happens often is is someone, a family, a patient given a hospice referral, you know, the last thing you think about is shopping around. Um, But if you live in a community where there are several programs or, you know, or or, or more, um, it really is important to shop around. So, you know, if you go online, there are actually, and we have information on, on our website about this, but there are now several websites that help you compare hospices on certain measures like whether they operate as nonprofits or for-profits, um, how much on average they spend per day on patient care. So that, that can give you a little bit of a sense. And, you know, I, I, I always tell people that really the most important thing is to call up programs and, and talk to a nurse or talk to whoever answers the phone, you know, get some basic information, uh, three questions to ask or, you know, what is the background of the medical director? Uh, is he or she board certified in palliative medicine, which is the, the specialty for relief of suffering? Uh, number two, what is the average nurse or social work, worker caseload? Because you really don't want it to be too high, obviously. Right. Um, and and what services do, do you provide? You know, is it strictly the Medicare mandated services or or do you offer ancillary services such as massage or music or art therapy? And um, and see how those questions are answered. You know, in a way, the actual answers to some of the questions aren't as important as the fact that if there's somebody on the phone, if you're dealing with an agency where people really are willing to answer your questions and take the time that you need to have all your concerns addressed, that's an important 
uh, yeah, signal to know that that could be a good program for you. And if it's a if it's an agency that's just too busy to answer a lot of the questions and is ready to get on to the next call, uh, that can tell you certain things. Yeah. Did you ever think, uh, as you were watching your father go through, you know, his phase, uh, his stage of of dying in the hospital, and then me- talking with your friend and co-author, um, did you ever think it would come to this? I mean, were you thinking? I mean, look where it's come now. Now you're, you're, you're basically an expert, an advocate, and um, and changing lives. Well, uh, thank you. Um, I, I uh, like I, I'd like to think that our book has an impact on on people's lives. I certainly wasn't thinking of that when I I sat it in the hospital next to my dad. Um, but you know, when when Sheila and I were talking about it initially, just as friends and our, our experiences. We really, you know, the thing that we wondered was, why is all of this such a mystery? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are these organiz, you know, there's this hospice thing out there, but nobody really gets what it's about until the time comes, and and so that, that really kind of got us thinking. Well, yeah. Yeah, maybe we need to kind of lift this out of the shadows, yeah. um, and 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 bring it into public view. And and we didn't go in to it with any agenda. You know, we weren't pro hospice right, or anti hospice. Right. We just wanted to see, you know, what is this all about and why don't people get it more? That's right. And shine some light on it. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Fran Smith, um, and we're going to come back and continue this discussion. Really, it's it's essential. It's critical. More about uh, how to change the way and understand better that you have choices in the way that you die and how you go through that process. More with Fran when we come back right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. I'm Leanna Tan, and this is The Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about death today and trying to whittle down its association with spook and fear. We're listening to Fran Smith, who works firsthand with hospice patients on a daily basis. She just debunked some myths of hospice care, like that it's not a place like most people think, but it's a way of dying in your own home. She's saying it can kind of be a peaceful experience rather than this fearsome thing that people generally associate death with. And this next part of the interview, it's really informative. She, she talks about how the decision for hospice care is made and how you can choose what services to go with if you and your doctor decide that hospice care is for you or a family member. And I think this segment is really vital to listen to because you might be thinking, well, I'm not dying or all my family members are really healthy or I'm not in a situation to even have to start thinking about this. But one of the really poignant things that... Fran says is that it's important to talk about it when you and your family members are healthy. And so it can be this light topic and, you know, you're just kind of talking about it in a hypothetical situation rather than waiting till literally your last moments when everyone is carrying all these worries and burdens because then it suddenly becomes this very heavy, depressing topic. Again, I think the subject is so appropriate. Last night, in fact, I had a chance to go visit a 99-year-old friend of ours, and I got a call. Uh, we actually saw him Sunday, and he's he's just at that stage, Fran, where he just wants to be done. You know, he wants to he wants to leave Earth. He wants to go be with his wife. 
He wants to see his dad. He wants he's tired of his body giving out on him. And uh, but he, he was actually healthy enough that he wasn't in any type of hospice care. He's, he's in a senior living center. And uh, I sat there with him last night and just held his hand and we just talked. And it's a, it really it was interesting for me because it's one of the only times I've had a chance to do that, that how, how special that moment is, how important that moment is and how much really most of us don't know about it. Is that is that one of the reasons you wrote the book, Fran? You know, that is exactly why we wrote the book. And, you know, what you're describing is just truly beautiful. The, you know, that the gift that you can give your friend just by being a presence yeah. and a compassionate presence. And that's really what hospice is all about. Um, my co-author and I, Sheila, and I came to the book through the deaths of our own fathers. Um, both we've Sheila and I have known each other for years. We worked together in newspapers. We've been friends. I was her editor, she was my editor, um, but both of our fathers died around the same time, and both after very long declines, and my father died in a hospital, and Sheila's father died in hospice care, and we kind of talked about the experience hmm. the way friends do, and realized the difference that good hospice care can make, both for a patient and for the family. How interesting. So you uh, you saw the contrast. You talked about the difference and uh, what? What do you, first of all, I guess, just explain hospice versus traditional, just hospital care. I mean, I guess either way we're dying, right? Or either way we're going through a process of, of what? What is hospice care? Well, hospice care is a program, a service, and a whole philosophy of care. It's designed for people who have a life expectancy of six months hmm. um, if the disease were to run its natural course. But, you know, these things aren't, can't always be predicted in a right. great way. So sometimes people, often people outlive that diagnosis, that live, outlive that six months, and then they can be recertified for hospice. But it's basically, it's a, a system that, it, it's a holistic approach to care. It provides medical care, nursing care, social work support, psychological support, really designed to relieve suffering, and also to get people to a place where they can really live as fully as possible in the mm. times they have, in the time they have left. And you, our, our book, okay. You Go called ahead. it a philosophy. I mean, really, it's, it's, it's more like a paradigm that just then involves different medical fields. It's a, that's a great word. Yeah, it really brings together, you know, uh, it, it, crosses, it crosses all kinds of fields and, and really to support families in, and patients in every way possible. One of the great insights of hospice when it started back 40 years ago is that suffering isn't only a medical issue. It's mm. psychological. It's, you know, it can be uh, spiritual. spiritual. It yeah. can be emotional. So, so really, if you're going to support people at that stage of life, you have to bring in support in all of those realms. And and um, it, it's there's a movement, you know, something's going on. If 44% of the people that are dying are are now involved or, or using hospice in that process, is it just the evolution of medicine? Are we now, you know, are we now starting to treat, I guess, like you said, the whole person? It's partly the evolution of medicine. And, you know, that was really those numbers really surprised us when we got into this. We thought it's some kind of fringy thing because people don't really yeah. go around talking about hospice very much. No, right? they don't. Um, so we thought it was some kind of some fringy thing. And, you know, and when we realized how big it was, it, it, it became clear that there has been an evolution. And also there, there's a kind of an evolution in, the, in our way of thinking, I think, as a country. I mean, so many people have seen loved ones die badly 
yeah. in hospitals getting so much treatment, yeah. often torture, torturous uh-huh. treatment at the end of life, and come out of that saying there has to be a better way. There has to be a way to do this peacefully. There has to be a way to do this with dignity. So I think we're really seeing a whole cultural shift. And the book is really, we tell a lot of stories about people who opted for hospice care or, you know, at, at various points or, you know, who resisted it or other people who were more comfortable with it and really show what it can do for, for real people. I mean, everyone in the book are, are real people with real names and these are real families. Um, and, you know, it's just fascinating to see how people can come out of an experience of loss and say, you know, families can come out of the experience of loss and say, wow, you know, that was actually a really good experience. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like last night, it's there's something beautiful just by simply, I guess, facing your diagnosis. I mean, and, and I guess it's that that's one of the difficult things is battling it. Let's how hard do we fight, and at what point do we give in and or give up? And it's not even giving in, but just accept it and let it, and then just live. I mean, I guess that's part of that the psychology of this stage, huh? Yeah, you know, one of the things, we opened the book with a story of a man named Westy Hammer, and that was really his name, right? Oh, really? <laughs> um, and he ha- had a, a very aggressive form of leukemia and went through just, you know, brutal, brutal treatments for, for four and a half years. And, I mean, he had hundreds uh, he had more than uh, he'd taken more than 250 medications. He had more than 350 blood transfusions. Mm. He had a stem cell transplant. He spent hundreds, 600 nights in six different hospitals. And at the point when somebody first suggested hospice care to him, he was horrified. He was in his early 50s, and he really thought it meant giving up. Yeah. And finally, he agreed to meet with a social worker from the hospice just to kind of hear what it was all about. And the social worker completely reframed the question. The social worker said, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Oh, wow. That's great. And that got him thinking. And that's really the question at the heart of our book. You know, it really got him thinking, okay, do I want to spend it going to the hospital, spending all day in the hospital, getting more of these treatments? Or what do I want to do? And he realized he wanted to spend it with his wife and his twin kids, grown at that point. Hmm. His friends, he had a huge community of friends. He wanted, he thought about writing a book about cancer to help other people deal with the diagnosis. And that really, he realized that he was opening up possibilities um, at that point in his life. And he yeah. opted for hospice care. He was on it for six months. And in those six months, he did all of those things, yeah, including writing the book. Well, I mean, maybe that's all we need too is um, just that shift to know that it is a choice and and it's just a simple question, really. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? But a lot of us, I guess, we feel like we're failing, we're giving up if we choose to not just fight it. That's tough. Right, and you know, we're, I'm, the book certainly doesn't make an argument no, for either not way. fighting. No, it's, um, yeah. You know, but in you know, in in any number of cases, you know, we're the 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 fight becomes just a fight for a few more days, mm-hmm. or a fight for really a terrible quality of life. You know, so you have yeah. to you have to kind of weigh. You know, well, where is the fight likely to get me, and how consistent is that with where I want to be? Yeah, and would I rather be living for something than trying to not die? Um, right. That's powerful. Is And it's taking over. Talk a little bit about, I mean, there's a lot of myths we have 
with hospice care. I think like just the simple idea that, yeah, I guess that's just the way you die. But, but right. what are some well, other you know, myths we need to watch out for? Well, one myth is that it's a place. Uh, wow. Rusty certainly had that idea. It's a place you go to die and not, not a very nice place, you know, some yeah. kind of dumping ground. And, you know, as you said in the beginning of the program, hospice is in most instances a way of staying in your own home and dying at home. Huh. And survey after survey show that's where most people want to die, in, the, in, the, in their own home and in the comfort, you know, in the comfort of their own beds right. and, in, you know, with the support of their families. Um, another myth is that hospice is only for cancer patients. And in the early days, that was true. It was really designed for cancer patients. But now... Most people in hospice care who die in hospice care, more than half of people have non-cancer diagnosis. So people, you know, it could be congestive heart failure, kidney disease. Um, and Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's in many cases. So really, you know, all the things that people were dying of. Yeah. Um, and in the book we write about a woman who had um, heart failure and, you know, was, was, was very old and, you know, had been in and out of hospitals and then finally went on hospice care and actually, you know, she was expected to die very quickly and uh-huh. rebounded with the great holistic support she <laughs> sure. got in hospice care and lived for 14 months in hospice uh-huh. care. And in that time, she got to see her eldest grandchild get married and also got to hold her first great-grandchild, and she died several hours after that. I mean, it really is a beautiful, beautiful, um, I think, lesson for all of us, which is why the the book is so valuable. We're going to take a break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Sticking with us, I'm Leanna Tan, and this is the Matt Townsend Show. Halloween is coming up, and so we're talking about death today, but we're trying to take that spook factor out of it. Why does death have to be so scary? After listening to these interviews, I realized that it can be a beautiful thing. We're listening to two interviews of two different people who have worked in hospice care. Fran Smith was the first interview, and she talked about the logistics of hospice care, what it is, and you know, what services are available and such. Now we're going to listen to an interview with Karen M. Wyatt, and she brings a different angle on the idea of hospice care. She talks about what she's learned from people who are awaiting their death and their take on what matters most in life. It's it's such a touching thing. It, it, it's interesting how those uh, all their stories change the minute you add the little contingency that you're dying. Yes, definitely. Tell us what you've learned about that. You know, you've spent so many years dealing with people, you know, on the edge of life, on the edge of survival. What, what, what are some of the key learnings that stand out? Well, um, to begin with, I, I really found I entered the lives of most of these patients when they were really at a crisis point, having just learned that they're going to die or, or being within a few weeks of death. And I really set out to, to find out from them what they were learning and what that transformation was like at the end of life. And um, 
without a doubt, every patient talked about love as being one of the most important things or one of the things that mattered the most to them in their last days of life, who they loved, how much they had loved, and who loved them. Fascinating. And hand in hand with love went forgiveness because... Because we cannot love other people without practicing forgiveness, because mm-hmm. everyone we love will disappoint us at some time. And so the task I saw most people working on was figuring out how to be forgiven or to forgive other people in those last few days of life. What a special time to be around them. Um, it's, so, it's, it's, just, it's almost cliche, isn't it, that love is what is on their minds, but it's just, it's almost, it's just so universal, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And it... It made a big impact on me because over and over people said, uh, none of my possessions matter, my wealth doesn't matter, my job, my status in life doesn't matter. Mm. It matters to me um, who I have loved and the relationships that I have had. And some of them said to me, I wish I had thought about this earlier. I wish I had thought about this years ago and changed the focus of my life. And that's really what inspired me to write a book about it because I, I realized we could be changing the way we look at things even when we're not on our deathbed and yeah. not at the end of life and change how we approach our lives and what we put our energy and time into. Wouldn't it be great if we could somehow conscientiously keep that top of mind that we don't have to wait till we're dying, we don't have to wait till we're stretched to the end to be making some of these changes? What, what do you sense gets in the way? I mean, the obvious marketing, life, the world. Yeah, life is just overwhelming at times, and I think we do get so caught up in the details of what we're doing um, and running around busily in our lives that that we don't we don't think about these things. But I think we also actually want to avoid thinking about it anyway. I think most of us have a fear of of death and dying, and it's much easier to put it out of our minds and not think of it. But one of the great gifts for me of working with people who are dying is just is being immersed in it all the time. So I, I can't help but think about it. And that's actually been wonderful. It's it, actually that's taken like a, away my fear. Isn't that interesting? Because I, I just yesterday spent some time talking to a hospice um, chaplain, and he, he basically says the exact same thing. I'm very comfortable talking about all this. And in fact, he loves it. The stories that come out of these people and the examples are they're profound. Yes, it is. It's so profound, and it's such a unique opportunity to be able to be part of the lives of these patients at, at the very end of life and to just to observe it and walk with them and learn what they're learning at that time. It's, it's such it's, a sacred time, isn't it? Oh, it is. Sacred is like the word that comes to mind when I hear of that. Yeah, definitely. It's beautiful, actually. As much as, I mean, there's pain and fear uh-huh. involved at times, but the parole of hospice is to help alleviate the negative symptoms um, to make sure that, it's, uh, that it can be a special and meaningful time for each patient. Do you believe, I've had somebody tell me once that one of the greatest lessons that you can give somebody is um, how you die. And I've heard, so I heard that, like, like how you go about dying. And then I thought, well, maybe a better lesson is how you teach about living uh, while you're dying. Or I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm trying to get to how is that the greatest lesson? Or what do you feel about that? Like this, because you're getting all of these profound lessons just listening to these people in their final time. 
Um, what do you see as the great gift that you give as you're dying? Well, I actually, I think both of the things you talked about are really important. I think it's important in our society that we learn a little bit about what happens when people die, because I think we've become pretty detached from yeah, it, totally. and that's one of the reasons we're afraid. And if we were able to look at it, or if it happened like in the old days, if it happened more and more inside the home, and um, we were taking care of our loved ones when they died, it would really help us a lot to, to dispel a lot of our fears and misunderstandings. Yeah. But then um, these lessons that I learned from patients, I really do believe that they're the secret to how we should be living. And so it isn't just learn how to die so you're able to do it better, but the, the whole point is if you learn how to live now and live your yeah. life with priorities, these priorities and what matters in life, Dying isn't going to be that big an issue for you. Right. You will already feel complete. Like I've I've done it. You'll I be really it. yeah. You'll be yeah. It's it's almost like just the after thought. I mean, it's you become what you need to become. So dying's just the passing on. Um, give yeah. us give us one of your give or give us. We're going to come back and and have a whole big segment where you can just teach us a bunch of the learnings. What's one in about thirty seconds? What's one of the What's one of the big learnings that has stood out? And then we'll have you come back and explain it more. One that has stood out for me, I mentioned already, is the idea of forgiveness and forgiveness to the extent of not even not even wasting energy on being angry and upset with people, letting go of that right at the time that something yeah. happens to you. And because if not, you're holding it, huh? And there's, I guess, there's people that hold it all the way to the death. Oh yeah, holding it and wasting lots of your life energy oh. to it. Like, and seriously, what a waste, because. Just to have to to not be able to to like have this your peace damned up where you can't you can't experience peace because you're blocked by the lack of forgiveness. We'll come yeah. back and I really want you to to give us some insight on that, Karen. Because like okay. how how do we go about forgiveness and 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 do it early and not in the, in, a, in an earlier stage? Also, love to hear a bunch of your other ideas and lessons from your book. What really matters? Seven lessons for living from the stories of the dying. We're talking with Karen M. Wyatt, MD, right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. We're back with the rest of today's Matt Townsend episode. We just listened to the first part of an interview with Karen M. Wyatt. She's worked with people on a daily basis who are staring death straight in the face. And she talked about some things they said matter most to them on their deathbed. Most of the answers she heard boiled down to love and the people in their lives. She also talked about how we have this fear of death. And so no one really thinks about it until they're actually faced with it, and it makes it so much harder to cope with for everyone. And so I like the purpose of her interview to kind of make more of a comfortable discussion of death and also to share what people have learned about their life in their final days when they suddenly have a new perspective. So let's continue listening. Before we came, before we left, sorry, you talked about forgiveness and love were two of the great lessons you learned that, um, that people taught at that stage of their life or dying, 
What what uh, what were some other lessons? Well, uh, another lesson was the idea of living in the present moment, which we hear about all the all the time. Mm-hmm. That's become a really common kind of mantra these days. But what I learned from them is is the idea of finding joy in every single moment that you have and cherishing every moment and. It became very clear to me at that time how little I did that, how little I really appreciated what was around me in the moment. But I saw these dying patients who knew, like, this might be the last, today might be the last day I see the sunset. This might be the last time I hear that song. And they appreciated every single thing, every person they saw, every smile, Mm. every every taste of food so much. And it, it made a powerful impact on me to realize I don't do that at all. I I just, I'm oblivious half the time to what I'm experiencing and not even noticing, not noticing how beautiful things are around me and appreciating it. And that was a very powerful lesson for me. That's huge. And then you also become ungrateful because you're not noticing it. So which kind of gets back to love. Um, I guess, too, it's interesting because forgiveness would mean you're also hanging on to the past, not being present. That's right. That's right. That's one of the biggest lessons I found about forgiveness is that when you really genuinely practice forgiveness, you free up a lot of energy because you tie up this energy inside of you holding on to old memories and keeping grudges alive. And once you start to let those go, you have even more energy available to you to to actually notice what's happening around yeah. you and appreciate it and to feel the gratitude that you mentioned um, because... You're just not, you're simply not wasting, you're not wasting your life energy away. And, and, and your bandwidth, so it's your energy and you, you only have so much time anyway, but to occupy yeah. <laughs> it with so much energy, especially about stuff from the past that you can't, it's almost like we need the stories, don't we? We need, it's, we, we think in our little myopic human way, we think we need to have this grudge or we lose something, I guess. Yeah, For some I reason we hang on to it. Yeah, a lot of people they they feel that something was was done wrong to them that they've been harmed, and that to let go of it is to let the other person off the hook, and right. that somehow that that's not right. That the other person should have to suffer for what they've done wrong. But really, they're. By holding on to resentment, we just cause ourselves more suffering rather than hurting the other person. We just hurt ourselves even more by holding it. It just seems like that's what it's about, huh? It just it ends up hurting you. It ends up taking your energy, your bandwidth, and maybe even be causing your sickness that's driving you to the end. Yes, definitely. Oh, there's a lot of freedom in being able to let it go. Did you did you see any ideas um, and lessons that came about how they do let go? How how do you, I mean, I know one of your points is surrender. How, how do these people learn these lessons? I guess, is it just you're so faced with the reality of the end that you have no other choice but to accept it? Well, that's partly true. I think it's kind of being up against the wall, like here it is. Yeah, da-da. <laughs> no play, nowhere else to go. Right. You have to look at it and address it. But um, it seemed to me that there is this certain amount of surrender and just kind of opening your heart and just deciding uh, I'm going to let go of everything, everything that keeps me in the past and everything that, that uh, everything that's miserable that I'm holding on to because they're not serving me at all. Mm-hmm. And we have a few moments left and I want 
this to be, I want them to be beautiful and filled with peace and love, not filled with anger and resentment. Yeah. Um, I did see, though, there were, there's one of the stories from the book, um, a sweet little story that sometimes it takes an action on the part of a physical action to actually trigger forgiveness to happen. And it was a story of, oh, there was, um, our patient had three children, two daughters and a son who were estranged from one another. The daughters were taking care of their mother, but the son had been the black sheep of the family and hadn't been around for Mm. 20 years. No, none of them had spoken to him. But the mother who was our patient desperately wanted her children to be reunited before she died. That was the one thing that, that mattered to her more than anything. And, um, Although her daughters would hear nothing of it, they did not want the son to be involved. We finally convinced them to allow him to come and visit their mother. And while he was, they left the house when he came. They didn't want to see him. But while he was there, she told him she was also disappointed because she'd been making this hooked rug for her great-granddaughter who had just been born. Mm-hmm. It would have the granddaughter's name and birth date on it. She'd made one for every grandchild and great-grandchild, but she was too ill to finish the rug. So what actually happened is the son took the rug with him and finished it for his mother as a surprise. And he came back to the house and showed up with that rug. And he'd never done anything like that. Isn't that amazing? And he just did it out of pure love for, for his mother. He finished that rug. The sisters saw him bring that in. And literally, it was like their hearts just broke open. And 20 yeah. years of bitterness and animosity was wiped out by that one loving act, act. that he did for their mother. And just like that, instantly, the three of them were reunited. And that mom was able to have a peaceful death because her children came together. But it happened that quickly. Yes. And that's one of the things people think that it will take years and years to forgive someone. They think that right. it will... It, I'll always you know, remember it, right. Um, but, but it can happen in an instant, and I saw it multiple times. Well, that's happen. the miracle, isn't it? So the peace can come as soon as you, I guess, create the space for it. Or, the, you know, like this son, the, the prodigal son, the lost son ends up creating, fixing this rug, and it, it, this act of love shifted the minds of everybody. I mean, to me, I guess that's all forgiveness really is, is having the shift, the shift that allows love back in. And then that seems to erase everything. Yeah, exactly. Just shifting your view, how you view the other person. Yeah. And suddenly they saw him as someone who was capable of doing a great loving act and, and making a self-sacrifice out of love for their mom. And they hadn't seen him that way yeah. for years and years. And they, they just needed to expand their view of who he was. So, so I would say the impact that's had on me, on my life, is that I try in every encounter yeah. to, to adopt that attitude right away is to try to have compassion and understand, okay, even if that person meant to harm me, I don't want yeah. to hold on to anger at them. I would like to let it go. And well, and on. what would it take for somebody to be in a position where they'd want to harm you? They must be hurting so bad. They must be broken. They must be. And not exactly. in like a punitive broken, but just almost a sad, it's almost just understanding. It's having understanding and empathy that we're all in this thing together. Oh, exactly. And exactly. And that, who knows, I've harmed people too. Oh, I've yeah. hurt people without intending to. And um, 
even though even times when my intentions were all good, I've said the wrong thing or done something stupid or, you know, not not been thoughtful toward another person. But um, we have to allow that other people are trying. They're just trying to get by, too. That's true. As you uh, as you sit and you think about these lessons, how have they impacted your life? Like this has got to be a profound thing for you personally. Definitely, uh, one of the well, I mentioned already that forgiveness has been a very big has had a big impact on my life. Yeah. Working on on forgiveness, trying to live more in the present moment and appreciate the the moment around me, and then also learning under the topic of surrender, learning to let go of my expectations for the future. That's that's one I still have to work on all the time, uh-huh. <laughs> is that I'm almost always projecting out into the future and hoping or expecting things to turn out a certain way. And that's the only reason I ever get disappointed is that I created expectations that weren't... Um, weren't reasonable or realistic. So well, and that's so to, hard, isn't it? That is like, that is Americana right there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Having high expectations, expecting a lot, getting, you know, we, 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 but you're, you're kind of saying one of the lessons you, that we need to learn and that you've learned is maybe just letting the future, I mean, you can work, I mean, you had to work to get a medical degree, but then letting it be, let the future come as it may. Yes, and it's actually been a huge lesson with writing a book and publishing a book is that I've attached, I attach big expectations to that, that I have to constantly destroy. I have to constantly (laughs) wipe it out and just be where I am today. And, you know, it doesn't matter what I could dream of that might happen or how many people might read the book. It matters that if I'm talking to someone like you right now who has read the book and, you know, to be here and be present with it and let it just be whatever it is right now instead of putting all my energy into the future. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's that idea of bringing the energy up from the past and keeping it from projecting way into the future to just focus on the now. I love that. And I, I mean, I see it too. I do a lot of speaking and, you know, you'll be all excited to go do a speech because there's going to be so many people there and you show up and there's half as many as you thought and you might be frustrated. But then if you get in the moment, you feel it. You actually feel it. To me, I guess it's almost like we're sitting here on this earth. We spend all of our time buying a car, getting a car, shining the car, getting it ready for the trip. Then when we're on the trip, we can kind of hardly wait to get there. And then when we get home, we just clean the car after we went. But no one was ever in the car when we were driving. This is a drive. We're on the road in our lives right now. And a lot of us are too caught up in where we were and where we're going that we're no longer enjoying the road. Yeah, exactly. And when you mentioned traveling, I actually had the experience at one time in my life. I was traveling through Scotland and saw like a castle or something. And at that moment, I thought, I need to remember to come back here someday so I can really (laughs) look at this and pay attention to it. And later I realized, that's ridiculous. I was there. (laughs) I was there and I didn't even appreciate it. I put it on some list in my head that someday I'll go back again. That's a great example. Like, oh, my kids would really love to see this. Or sometimes we're so caught up taking pictures in the moment for our future that we're not in the moment creating a memory. Yeah, we have all these pictures and then don't even remember. What was that? What was that? That's really, it's a fascinating thing because a lot of our listeners, Karen, are truck drivers. And I was just talking to some actually yesterday at church that drive all over the country and they love it. 
They love that they can just sit there. In fact, he said the easiest thing about driving truck is driving truck. The hardest thing is getting ready to go or, you know, getting ready for your next one. But there's a lot of people out there that um, probably need to just enjoy the ride. Yeah, I could see it just being in that space and just t- taking in whatever whatever's coming your way mm. as you as you move along. That's powerful. Tell me as we uh, we've only got a couple more minutes where we can talk about it. Um tell me what overall what what do you hope everybody gets? I mean, I- I've written a book. It's a and writing a book is such a personal thing. And you leave <laughs> yeah. so much on the table, don't you? Oh yes, absolutely. What do you yeah, What do you really hope cool. everyone's getting? Well, the first thing is that I, I hope people become less afraid of death and dying, and that it becomes a more regular topic in our conversations mm-hmm. here, and that that we can just look at it and not be so uncomfortable as a society. Um, and then, secondly, I really hope that people can pick up some of these lessons and and make even one change in their life and think, I'm going to change the way I do this because because uh, I want to know when I get to the end that I that that I paid attention and I was awake through my life and I I paid attention to things that matter. Ugh. So I'm hopeful that that will happen for people. Well, and I think it will. And it really is in the present that life is lived, right? I mean, and it's even in the yeah. present that life is die. You die. It's always in the present. And and then I guess it when you pass, then you'll pass to some other realm. Um but in the present, I can still be with my family, even if I have a sickness. I can still be with my family, even if we're in debt. I can still be present in my life, even if I'm, you know, still in school or whatever level of life or stage of life I'm in. Yeah, no matter what the situation. Powerful. Powerful stuff. Well, I really I love it. And uh, it is a great book. Karen M. Wyatt, MD. The book's called What Really Matters? Seven Lessons for Living from the Stories of the Dying uh, honestly, it's on the list. It's a must-read. I highly suggest it. And uh, we're going to thank you, Dr. Karen M. Wyatt. Appreciate you so much. Well, I really felt like these discussions today gave me a new perspective on life and death. Maybe if we tried looking at death like Karen and Fran suggest, then celebrating and recognizing death would look differently. Maybe Halloween would look a little bit more like Easter, you know, with fresh beginnings, with peaceful endings and serenity versus gore and pain and fear. There are a few things that people said today that I really liked. I liked it when Fran said that when you're looking for a hospice caretaker, ask a lot of questions like what their background is and what their workload is and their services. And it's not necessarily about who gives the best answer to your questions, but rather who takes the time to listen to your concerns and find out answers to your questions. Because those are the kind of people you or your loved one will want to be around in their final days. And I might add in any day of your life, you'll probably rather be around those people. And I also liked it when Matt said that as we learn and openly understand death more and and forgive those of our past, then we can peacefully let the future come as it may. And I also loved... All of the experiences that Karen shared about people who wished they had forgiven earlier or realized in their final days that possessions and position and wealth had absolutely no value to them anymore. But it was the people in their lives that mattered. And they began thinking of all the relationships they had fostered or let slip through their hands. So I think the main message that I took away from today was don't wait until your deathbed. 
Death can be beautiful if we live the best we can. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Liana Tan. Join me again next time for another episode of Matt Townsend. Matt Townsend.